Welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. To grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 24, The Coral Kingdom. The next morning I woke up, surprisingly enough, with a clear head. Much to my amazement, I was in my own room. My companions, I assumed, had been returned to theirs also. Neither they nor I knew what had happened during the night. Only the future could possibly unravel that mystery. Then it occurred to me to leave my room. Was I free once more, or was I still a prisoner? I was perfectly free. I opened the door, went along the passages, and up the central staircase. The hatches, which had been closed the day before, were now open. I went out on the platform. Ned, Lan, and Conseil were there, waiting for me. I asked them what had happened to them. They knew nothing. They had fallen into a heavy sleep and had no recollection whatsoever. They also had been astonished to awaken in their cabin. And the Nautilus? She seemed as quiet and mysterious as ever, moving along the surface at a leisurely speed. Nothing on board seemed to have changed. Ned Land, with his sharp vision, scanned the sea. It was deserted. Nothing was visible on the horizon, no sail and no land. There was a brisk westerly breeze blowing, and long billows, whipped up by the wind, made the ship roll. The Nautilus, after taking on a fresh supply of air, kept at an average depth of 50 feet, so she could surface again quickly, something that was done several times during that day of the 19th of January, contrary to the usual routine. When this occurred, the second-in-command would go up to the platform and repeat the usual phrase, which could be heard down below. Captain Nemo kept out of sight. Of the crew, I saw only the impassive steward, who served me with his usual silence and efficiency. At about two o'clock, I was in the saloon, busy classifying my notes when the door opened and the captain came in. I greeted him, and he returned my greeting almost imperceptibly, without saying a word. I returned to my work, hoping that he might say something that would throw some light on the events of the night before. He said nothing. I looked at him. His face was tired and his eyes were red from lack of sleep. I thought his expression was one of profound sadness, of genuine grief. He paced to and fro, sat down, got up again, picked up a book, sat, put it down again the next minute, and consulted his instruments without taking the usual notes. He was restless and could not keep still for a moment. Finally, he came over to me and said, "'Are you a physician, Monsieur Aronnax?' I was so taken aback by this question that for a few seconds I looked at him without answering. "'Are you a doctor?' he repeated. "'A number of your colleagues have studied medicine. Gratiolet, Mokina Tandon, and others.' "'Yes,' I said. "'I am a doctor and medical resident at several hospitals. I practiced for several years before joining the museum.' "'Good!' Obviously, my reply had satisfied Captain Nemo, but not knowing what he was driving at, I waited for the next question before uttering another word. "'Monsieur Aronnax!' said the captain. Would you be kind enough to attend to one of my men? Have you a sick man on board? Yes, monsieur. I am at your disposal. Come then. I will admit my heart was beating fast. I cannot say why, but I felt that there must be some connection between the illness of a member of the crew and the events of the previous day, and that mystery preoccupied me at least as much as the sick man. Captain Nemo led me aft into a cabin near the crew's quarters. There, on a bed, lay a man of about forty with energetic features, a real Anglo-Saxon type. I bent over him. He was not just ill. He was wounded. His head was propped up on two pillows, swathed in bandages that were soaked in blood. I undid the bandages. The wounded man stared with wide-open eyes without a word of complaint. It was a ghastly wound. The skull had been smashed by a blunt instrument exposing the brain, which had suffered a deep internal lesion. Clots of blood had formed in the bruised and broken mass, whose color resembled the dregs of wine. 
He had suffered both contusion and concussion, and his breathing was slow. Now and then his face twitched spasmodically. The paralysis of his brain was massive, affecting both feelings and movement. I felt the patient's pulse. It was intermittent. The extremities of his body were already getting cold. It was evident that death was approaching. There was nothing I could do. After having dressed his wounds, I rebandaged his head. I turned to Captain Nemo. "'Where did he get this wound?' I asked. "'What does that matter?' the captain replied evasively. "'A collision broke one of the levers in the engine room, and it hit this man on the head. The second-in-command was in danger. He threw himself forward to receive the blow. A brother gives his life for a brother. A friend dies for a friend. That, what could be simpler? That is the law aboard the Nautilus. But what do you think of his condition?' I hesitated. "'You may speak,' said the captain. "'This man doesn't understand French.' I took one last look at the wounded man and said, "'This man will die within two hours. "'Can nothing save him?' "'Nothing.' The captain clenched his fist. Tears appeared in those eyes I had thought incapable of displaying any emotion. For a few moments I watched the dying man, whose life was gradually ebbing away. He grew paler and paler beneath the glare of the electric light that fell on his deathbed. I looked at his intelligent face, furrowed with premature wrinkles, caused, perhaps, by misfortune or misery many years before. Would some last words escape his lips and tell me something of the secret of his life? "'You may leave now, Monsieur Aranax,' said Captain Nemo. I left the captain with the dying man and went back to my room, deeply moved by what I had seen. All day long I was uneasy, disturbed by sinister forebodings. I did not sleep well that night. During my waking moments between strange dreams, I thought I heard deep sighs in the distance like the chants of a funeral psalm. Could this be a prayer for the dead, murmured in a language I could not understand? Next morning, I went up on the bridge. Captain Nemo was there. When he saw me, he came over to me. Professor, he said to me, would you like to go on an excursion today, under the sea? With my friends? I asked. If they wish. We are at your command, Captain. Be good enough to put on your diving suits, then. There was no mention of the dead or dying man. I joined Ned Land and Conseil and told them of Captain Nemo's invitation. Conseil accepted immediately, and for once the Canadian twos seemed quite willing to come. It was eight o'clock in the morning. By half-past eight, we were dressed for our new adventure and outfitted with our breathing and lighting equipment. The double doors were opened, and accompanied by Captain Nemo, who followed by a dozen members of the crew, we set foot on the bottom of the sea where the Nautilus lay at a depth of about thirty feet. There was a gentle slope leading down to an uneven stretch of land at a depth of about 15 fathoms. This surface was completely different from the one I had encountered during my first excursion beneath the waters of the Pacific. Here, there was no fine sand, no prairie, no Pelagian forest. I immediately recognized this marvelous region into which Captain Nemo was leading us. It was the Coral Kingdom. In the branch of zoophytes, class of Alcyonaries, we had the order of Gorgonaries, which comprises three groups, the Gorgonians, the Acidians, and Coralians. Coral belonged to the last group. It is a curious substance that was formerly classified in turn as belonging to the mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdoms. This substance was medicine to the ancients, but it is jewelry to the modern world. It was not definitely classified within animal kingdom until 1694 by the naturalist Paisonol from Marseille. Coral is a colony of individual animalcules assembled on a brittle rock-like polypary. These polyps have an unusual type of generator that reproduces them by continuous process of budding growth. While each creature has its separate existence, all participate in the life of the community. 
a sort of natural socialism, as it were. I knew about the most recent research on this curious zoophyte, which ramifies and becomes mineralized at the same time. As the naturalists have pointed out, and nothing could have been more interesting to me than to visit one of these petrified forests planted by nature at the bottom of the sea. Switching on our lights, we followed a bank of coral in the slow process of formation, which, with the passing of time, will one day shut off this world of the Indian Ocean. Our path was edged with tangled bushes, due to the intertwining of undersea shrubbery covered with little star-like flowers studded with white lines. However, unlike plants growing on land, these rooted in the rocks grew downward. Our lights created a thousand charming effects as they played along the vividly colored branches. These membranous cylindrical tubes seemed to undulate with movement of the water. I was tempted to pick the fresh petals ornamented with delicate tentacles, some in full bloom, others scarcely in bud, while small fish resembling the flight of birds darted rapidly among them and touched them gently as they swam. But if my hand reached out to pluck these living flowers, their sensitive organisms were alerted and the whole colony was alarmed. The white petals would then recede into their red sheaths. Flowers faded away under my very gaze and whole bushes would be transformed into a mass of stony nipples. Chance had brought me into the presence of the most precious specimens of this zoophyte. This coral was just as good and just as valuable as the coral found off the shores of Italy, France, and the coastal regions of North Africa. Its brilliant, delicate tints more than justified the poetic names given to it by the trade Fleur de Sang and Acume de Sang, the flowers or foam of blood. It sells for as much as 500 francs a kilo, and in these beds there is enough to enrich a whole world of coral traders. The precious substance, each combined with other types of polypary, had formed compact, tangled masses called machiota, among which I noticed some magnificent specimens of pink coral. As we advanced, the bushes grew thicker, the tree-like formations taller. These were veritable petrified thickets, and the long stretches of fantastic shapes opened up before us. Captain Nemo led us through a dark gallery, whose gentle slope brought us down to a depth of 300 feet. Our lights, at times, produced magical effects as they played on the rugged contours of the natural arches and hanging formations, which resembled chaplets tipped with fiery dots. Among the coralline branches, I saw other polyps that were no less strange. Maylights, iris, iris with very visible feelers, tufts of coralline, a species of seaweed hardened into a crust, by the calcareous salts. Some of these were green, others red. Naturalists, after many long discussions, have finally and definitely relegated them to the vegetable kingdom. A scientist and thinker once said, this may well be the veritable point at which life emerges mysteriously from the world of matter, without, however, completely severing the bond that bind it to the inert source from which it springs. After walking for two hours, we had finally reached a depth of approximately 900 feet, that is to say, the extreme limit at which coral begins to form. No isolated shrubbery here, no brushwood, nothing but an immense forest of large mineral vegetation, huge petrified trees bound by garlands of plumerias, tropical creepers, all tinged with hues and reflected light. We walked under high branches, almost invisible in the shade of the waves, while at our feet tuba pores, meandrines, stars, fungi, and caryophytes formed a flowery carpet strewn with dazzling gems. What an indescribable spectacle! 
If we had only been able to communicate our feelings, why we were imprisoned behind masks of metal and glass? Why were we prevented from talking to each other? If only we could have shared the life of all these fish that swarm in these crystal waters, or better still, share the life of those amphibians which, for hours at a stretch, romp at will in sea and on land. Captain Nemo had stopped. My friends and I stopped also, and turning, I saw the crew form a semicircle around their chief. Then I noticed that four of them were carrying an oblong object on their shoulders. We were at the center of a vast clearing surrounded by the lofty branches of a submerged forest. The rays of their light created something resembling a twilight, which lengthened immeasurably the shadows on the bed of the sea. On the edge of the glade, complete darkness reigned except for the occasional spark emitted by the living skeletons of the coral. Ned, Land, and Conseil were standing near me. As we watched, it occurred to me that I was going to be present at some strange ceremony. Looking closer at the ground, I saw the surface broken here and there by light mounds encrusted with calcareous deposits, but arranged in a regular pattern that betrayed the hand of a man. In the middle of the clearing, on a pedestal of rock thrown on top of each other, stood a cross of coral, whose long arms one would have thought were made of petrified blood. At a sign from Captain Nemo, one of the men came forward to within a few feet from the cross and began to dig a hole with a pickaxe, which he detached from his belt. Then it dawned on me. This clearing was a cemetery. The hole, a grave, the oblong object, the body of the man who had died during the night. Captain Nemo and his men had come to bury their comrade in the communal resting ground at the bottom of this inaccessible sea. Never had I been moved more deeply, nor felt a deeper impression. I could scarcely believe that this was not a dream. Meanwhile, the grave was slowly being dug, while the fish, disturbed, fled here and there. I could hear the echo of the pickaxe striking on the hard ground. An occasional spark appeared as the axe struck a piece of flint lost at the bottom of the ocean. The grave became longer and deeper, and soon was deep enough to receive the body. Then the bearers stepped forward. The body, wrapped in tissue of white byssus, was lowered into the, its watery grave. Captain Nemo, arms crossed over his chest, and all those who had been loved by the dead knelt in prayer. We too stood, heads bowed, silent and respectful. The grave was then filled in, creating a, a slight mound. When this had been done, Captain Nemo and his men stood up, approached the tomb, knelt once more for a second, and held out their arms in a gesture of final farewell. The funeral procession started on its way back to the Nautilus, passed once more beneath the arches of the forest through the thickets, along the coral bushes, ascending all the way. At last, the lights of the ship came in sight, and their luminous trail guided us to the Nautilus. At one o'clock, we were back. As soon as I had changed my clothes, I went up to the platform and sat down by the searchlight, a prey of deep, conflicting thought. Captain Nemo joined me. I stood and said, The man died during the night, as I had predicted. Yes, Monsieur Aranax. He is resting now beside his companions in the coral cemetery. Yes, forgotten by all, but not by us. We dig the grave, and the polyps can be trusted to seal our tombs for eternity. Suddenly covering his face with clenched hands, the captain made a vain attempt to suppress a sob. Then he added, That is our peaceful cemetery, hundreds of feet below the surface of the waves. Your dead sleep quietly there, captain, well beyond the reach of sharks. Yes, monsieur, Captain Nemo replied gravely beyond the reach of sharks and of men. Questions to consider after reading. Why were Professor Aranax, Ned Landing, and Say taken back to their rooms? 
What do you think happened to the injured crewman? Why is Nemo acting the way he is? What do you think he is hiding? Professor Aranax hates being cut off from the others during the underwater excursion. Do you understand why he doesn't like being cut off from the others in communication? What do you think of the cemetery Nemo and the crew have? Is it practical? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this 